If I can invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 9. We're going to be reading from this text in just a moment. As you'll see from the notice sheet, the title of this sermon is The Prototype and Principles of Mission. Now some of the questions that people ask with regards to this topic look something like this. What is mission? How do we do mission? What is our mission strategy? These are questions that are asked by individual Christians, by churches, by missionary organizations. And sadly, what we often find is that many of the people discussing these topics are doing something very different to what we actually find in Scripture. Now, you might think with a title, The Prototype Principles of Mission, we would go to the book of Acts. And there is so much in the book of Acts that can inform us of this topic. But today we're actually looking at what the Lord Jesus does in chapter 9, which on a very foundational level can be seen as the first mission. So we're going to read Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. Luke chapter 9, and beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Let's pray together. We come to you now, O Father, and we pray. We cry out to you. We long for your word to be planted, rooted mightily within our hearts. And that, Father God, you would give us hearts that would be receptive and joy-filled in receiving the mighty, powerful word that is before us. Mm -hmm. We pray that through the preaching of your word now, that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted and that for each and every one of us, we would be challenged, convicted, lifted up in the joy and hope we have in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, just as we begin to work our way through this text, let's just consider, first of all, where we've got up to in this gospel. 
because even though this is just a standalone sermon, so to speak, it is important that we establish where we are as far as Jesus and his disciples are concerned. Now, the first thing we need to see is that, well, Jesus comes to this earth to begin a great big massive mega church in an auditorium, does he? No. What he does is he gathers a small group of men who come alongside him in his earthly ministry. He invests in them and disciples them. Now that already is striking. Something we should take note of. And what we should also take note of is up until this point in the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been doing everything. And what the disciples have been doing is spending time with Jesus, watching him, learning from him, growing through what he is doing, what he is teaching. Now, what have the disciples witnessed so far? Well, they have witnessed the spectacular. They have witnessed the Lord Jesus calm the storm. They've witnessed the Lord Jesus cast out demons. They've witnessed the Lord Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and forgive sin. They've also witnessed the horrible. They've witnessed the religious leaders cast him aside and seek to kill him. They have witnessed... His own family deem him to be mad and they have witnessed his own town disowning him. Now we come to Luke chapter 9 and we go from the disciples simply witnessing and learning all from what Jesus is doing to them now doing something. Now that's interesting. And where we come to this title, the prototype and principles of mission, this passage is not... The blueprint and the guide for all things mission. But we do have some principles in this text. That should mean something significant. For our understanding theologically and practically for mission today. So we're going to ask three questions as we work through this. How, what, then what? So the first question we'll spend a lot of our time on. How do we do mission? Then the next question will be, what do we do on mission? And then the final question will be, then what do we do? So how, what, and then what? So the first question we're going to be asking, spending quite a bit of our time on, is how do we do mission? Now the first thing that we are going to draw out From this passage on this question, if we notice just verse 1, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, we'll come to the demons and curing diseases in in a while. But the key thing we need to notice first is the power and authority, verse 1, and then into verse 2, and he sent them. Jesus has power and authority which he gives to his disciples and he sends them. Now, instantly, what Jesus is doing, and if we go to Acts, we'll see very consistently that is what happens in Acts 2, is something that has so often been missing in much of what is called mission today. 
So Jesus is sending his disciples. Now, if you think this is some isolated thing, oh, well, that doesn't normally happen. Well, let's just look at one crucial text on this topic. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 briefly. And we're going to see this authority of the Lord Jesus, which is going to be given to his disciples, which is going to be significant, not simply for this period of time, but for when we get to Acts and where we are today. So Matthew chapter 16 and from verse 18, the Lord Jesus speaking to Peter and the other disciples says, And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my, first time this is introduced, church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then verse 19, very crucial. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, what do we have here? We have heavenly authority that the Lord Jesus has and he gives to his disciples. Now, what is that authority? That is an authority for these men who Jesus is investing in to go out and to preach the gospel, to make disciples and to plant Churches, there we have a definition of mission to preach the gospel, making disciples, and to plant churches. This begins with the Lord Jesus, this heavenly authority, an authority for these disciples, which soon to be apostles, will then go in the Acts of the Apostles. To do that very thing. And the authority, verse 19, this binding and loosening, is the language of an authority structure that is to be established in the planting and structuring of local churches. Where even we see leaders being appointed, being called, being set apart to lead, to rule as elders of local churches. That is the authority given by the the Lord Jesus to the apostles, then to the elders of churches. And this is what we have today. So we go back then to Luke chapter 9. And we understand how formative this is. Now, friends, another thing that's very important, and this is something that is so modeled wondrously by the Lord Jesus, is at this time in the disciples' ministry development, we could say, well, I see in Acts, yes, they are on fire for the Lord. The Spirit is at work through them. They are ready. But surely as we look in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry, these disciples, they're not ready So what is the Lord Jesus doing here? Well, this is something crucial that we must understand about discipleship. He's not just throwing them off and hoping for the best. He has been investing in them. He has been training, teaching and preparing them. So he is sending them at this time on a shorter context mission with this heavenly authority. 
to begin to minister. Now, if we think, for example, many years ago before I was in pastoral ministry, I was a a secondary school teacher and initially I was a student teacher. So I was given the responsibility of teaching classes, but the classes weren't mine. They still belonged to the class teacher and the teacher there still had that degree of of authority and oversight and gave some, some feedback and some critique of what I was doing, that type of thing. There is an element of that. But what we must understand is one of the ways by which men in ministry contexts like this are going to grow is by being given the opportunities to serve within the framework of this authority structure. So if somebody says out with the local church, well, I've got the gift of evangelism. Well, praise God for that. Let's see you getting plugged into the local church, having the eldership investing in you and pray that this eldership will be then giving you that opportunity with which to serve. Now we see the framework here. This is where we see the principles being established because the Lord Jesus here with these men is sending them in twos. Now this is another important thing that we have to establish because in the context of passages in the Gospels and certainly what we find in Acts He does send them off in twos. Now if you just turn over to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. We also see another example. This is the same one where the Lord Jesus sends them off the 72 in this context. And here we find uh, verse 1. After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now you might look at this and think, well, is there a principle for sending men in twos in the context of mission? Well, let's first of all consider the practical and spiritual benefits of this, first of all. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10, it says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter 15, we also have very clear examples of men being sent in twos. Now, you might be thinking, well, if you send them off one by one, then you'll be able to cover more ground. Now, yes, that would be true, but we need to consider in the context of ministry and the many challenges this brings to have another brother beside you where you can pray together, share in the evangelistic and pastoral endeavors of that context. What a blessing that would be for the longevity of such mission. Now, the challenge then comes... In the question of where are the men, where are the laborers? Now in my setting in Aberdeen, I was sent as an individual man with my family to begin this church. Now was that ideal? No, it wasn't. But this brings the challenge to local churches of the need to be doing what we see here, investing in men, giving them opportunities with which to serve. 
This is a great challenge. And sadly, so often I meet with churches, church leaders where they're looking elsewhere, looking for miles, looking in other countries for the next church leader. What is within their own local church context? So be in prayer for that. Be in prayer even in this church that men would be recognized. They would be being invested in and being equipped for ministry. And it is such a joy to know that you have elders in this church that I know are committed to such a biblical work. So yes, we have this being sent with the authority of the Lord Jesus given to the apostles, now to local churches, her leaders. This principle of it being in twos. And then we have the next principle, which is dependence upon the Lord. Now this is another challenge. What does the Lord Jesus Christ equip the disciples with? Surely at this point in their their ministry development, they'll need a load of things. They'll need a load of gimmicks. They'll need a load of party tricks to get people's attention, right? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 3, take nothing. That's quite a start. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now we just stop and think. Practically, worldly speaking, this sounds a little bit like the wrong way around, surely. In our church in Aberdeen, we're going through 1 Corinthians, and we've been recently contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Now, the wisdom of the world would look at this and say, well, that makes no sense. But then we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have a wisdom which is from God. And what the Lord Jesus is most concerned with here is not, first and foremost, the development of their gifts, but the development and the growth of their faith, their dependence upon Almighty God, where they realize in the context of mission, I am weak, He is strong. I am needy, I am desperate, he is my all, he is my everything. This is the means by which such men in the context of mission are going to be equipped and used all the more for the advance of the kingdom of God. This is likened to a parable we find in Mark chapter 4 where the farmer goes, he sows, which is sowing the word, and then he sleeps. He wakes up and there is this great growth. He knows not how, but by the grace of God we know. And that is because God provides the growth. And praise God for that. If we think that mission is about what we ultimately can achieve, then we do not understand biblical mission. We are God's servants. And yes, we may be the ones who plant, we may be the ones who water, but God provides the growth. And praise God for that reality. That must be the heartbeat of mission. And that's why verse 3 makes perfect sense. Because it is about trusting, depending upon the Lord. And there's a crucial principle of mission. Now with that said, in the setting of Jesus sending these men out, 
there is still that expectation for hospitality. So we go on in verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now the first thing to mention is, yes, the Lord Jesus is sending the, the men out with effectively nothing. But in this cultural framework, there was that expectation that people would be being hospitable. Now, this then should make us realize that the framework for mission doesn't mean, well, we'll we'll go out with, with nothing. There may be some practical things that we get into view, but it is about that dependence on the Lord. There are many nowadays who say, well, if I have... 40 people and 30,000 pounds, then maybe I'll start a church. Mm-hmm. Or those who will say, well, if you follow this strategy and these three steps, then you've got yourself a successful church plan. Where are people getting that stuff from? True. Here, the Lord Jesus is sending them out in this context with nothing because it is to be about the dependence on the Lord and also because there is that expectation of hospitality in the settings in which they go. But the realization, brothers and sisters, for these disciples as they go out, is that they're going to be met with hostility. They're going into settings where they will face rejection. They will face scorn. Now here's another thing. Our brother Arthur was praying about this earlier with regards to the Acts of the Apostles, where there are times where we see growth. What else do we consistently see? The persecution of the church. So we must realize we don't go into a mission context because we enjoy the glitz and glamour of mission and church planting where the world is going to give us every accolade under the sun. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard labor. A labor where we will face opposition from the world and sadly at times even from those in the name of Christianity. Now what are we to say in the face of that? Well on one level we have Jesus saying in verse 5 that if we're, if we're not received, if the people are not received they are to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. So how are we to apply this? What it means here in this setting was that when the Israelites came back from Gentile territory they would have shaken the, shaken the dust off their feet as a sign of, well, we're getting this non, non-Israelite Gentile filth off of our feet. That was their physical action. That's what this means in the context of this is a testimony against those who have shown scorn against us. So when are we to do this? Well, I'll give you an example in Aberdeen. We have sought to reach many people with the gospel. But there have been rare occasions where somebody has become or one or two people have become quite disruptive in the context of visiting our church or they have constantly taken up time and resources and been quite a a difficult or negative presence and at times we have to seek wisdom from the Lord and say well we maybe need to step back from this person or if this person has been antagonistic then we maybe need to move and focus on somebody else. 
We would still be praying for these individuals, but there are times where we seek from the wisdom of the Lord to effectively do just this, shake the dust off of our feet. Now that's a hard thing to do when we consider, well, we are Christians, we are to show grace and love and compassion, and we're going to get to that shortly, but we must seek wisdom. And again, we're as brothers and sisters in the local church, we have one another, and we also have the guidance and care from her leaders. So we pray about this. And we see even from these verses already some clear principles regarding the how to do mission. Sent by the authority of the Lord Jesus, by the apostles, by the local church leaders in twos. Depending on the Lord, prepared for persecution. Now we come to the second question much more briefly, which is what do we do on mission? So we see verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So there's two overarching points that we're going to think about. Number one, preaching the gospel, and number two, showing care and compassion. So the first thing of what do we do on mission, and that is preach The gospel. Now, this might seem as though it it would be common sense. You'd go out on mission. The thing you're going to do is to preach the gospel, right? Well, how often have probably some of us heard of mission strategies where they advise you, don't preach the gospel, befriend people. And maybe eventually share something about Jesus. And if it is something about Jesus, it's all of God's love. (laughs) Now friends, look what we find in verse 2. What does Jesus send the disciples to do? He sent them out to proclaim what? The kingdom of God. Now what is the kingdom of God? This is the reality of God breaking into this universe in a new, glorious, triumphant way where the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. And in the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see he declares, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So what are we to proclaim? We are to proclaim a message of repentance, of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is sending these 12 men out. 12, a significant number, because in the context of Israel initially, they would be going to a group of religious people who ultimately will be the very enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who would seek to have him crucified. They would not want to hear a message of repentance. But this is going to be the means by which a new covenant is going to be established where Christ is the chief cornerstone and it will be built upon the apostles proclamation upon such a foundation what is that foundation it is the foundation that Jesus Christ came to this world to taste the native waters of this earth and to taste 
the bitter cup of God's divine wrath and judgment by becoming our sin bearer. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ faced the suffering and the sin and the eternal torment of hell that we deserve, that we could be forgiven for all who come in repentance and saving faith in his name by his blood. Friends, this is the gospel. This is what we must proclaim in mission and in our daily lives because this is the message that will save. Now we stand on this joyfully, foundationally, certainly with the question of what to do on mission. Now the other thing is of showing care and compassion. But as we look here in this passage, we'll notice that verse 1, they were given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then into verse 6, they were healing everywhere. Now we might look at this and think, well, there's a principle, let's go and do likewise. Now a couple of things that need to be said here. There is something unique in the context of these men. They are the apostles, which means the sent ones. They are the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certain things that take place here in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles are unique to this time as a means of authenticating this glorious new covenant, the message of the Gospel, the message of the risen Christ. We also need to bear in mind that as the Son of God is on this earth, At no time like any other in history, the demons are on high alert. Normally they want to remain hidden and unseen and unnoticed. But at this time, they can but shriek at Jesus' name. So this is a unique and a profound time. Today we stand upon this authority that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Saviour and he has stamped the death blow on Satan's neck because he is the risen and exalted Saviour. Friends, we stand on this authority and that authority is based on God's word. We have God's word. If we want to declare, how is this message authenticated? The word of God. And also, therefore... By the means of showing love and compassion. Now think about this. With these actions, even of healing people, the disciples, like the Lord Jesus, they were coming alongside people in their community. They weren't saying, well, I'll stand in my podium here, but I don't want to be touched by these local commoners who may be carrying all sorts of diseases. No, They came alongside the broken, the needy, and the vulnerable. We could be standing here in our church buildings with our right theology and our wrong practice. Like stone-cold theologians. And this is why the love and compassion that we show on mission as a local church in our daily lives as Christians is so crucial because there are lost, broken and needy people. 
One thing that's become so clear over the past 18 months, for example, is how desperate people are, how fearful people are, how concerned people are. What do we, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, declare to point them to? Who do we declare as we seek to love and care for our neighbour, for the people in this community and elsewhere. Oh friends, these are very real challenges and they absolutely are when we consider what we do on mission. Yes, we absolutely preach Christ and we do so by coming alongside our neighbour in our daily lives. And this then brings us to the final question, again briefly, then what? We've considered the how, the what, then the then what. Now you'll notice verses 7 to 9, we're not going to be unpacking them today. Again, this gives you the context of persecution. The disciples are hearing of John the Baptist having been beheaded. So they know, well, the danger is very much there. And then we come to verse 10. Following this mission, it says, On their return, the, and notice the word used, the apostles... Now, in verse 1, it says that he called the 12. So they're called 12, they're called disciples. Now in verse 10, they are called the apostles, which means, as we've said, the sent ones, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's notable in the context of this text. And it says that the apostles told him all that they had done. Now think about this. We've started with how to do mission. You're sent by that authority structure which is given from the Lord. How does it end? Well, we've been sent. Now we go off and we do our own thing and that's great. We're now free agents. No, there is the accountability to that authority structure. So for the apostles even, they are accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. For then those whom the apostles would send, they are accountable to them. And even where we have local churches constituting and being independent as local churches, they are accountable to the Lord and the members of those churches are accountable to the leaders of that local church. This Lone Ranger-ism attitude of, well, I've got my church thing, then I've got my ministry thing. The Bible does not reconcile such a thing. The local church authority is given by the Lord. We saw this in Matthew 16. And this is where we have something so complete in this example. With the then what? Well, then they go to the Lord Jesus and they report And surely at such times there would be such rejoicing at the work and service of the Lord for the advance of his kingdom. So we have the then what? And then in verse 10, and this is quite a nice touch but an important one to finish. It says, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, When I first went into pastoral ministry, I, like many others I know of, had great difficulty of taking a day off and having a time of rest. I know some pastors in the room might think, well, yeah, I understand that. But here we have another principle, the principle of rest. 
This is not in any way to encourage, well, we, we put our feet back and sit in Starbucks all day. No, no. This is based on significant labor for the Lord in ministry. But we also need that time of rest. The Lord Jesus gives the apostles time of rest after their mission. And that is important too. And this is what we have as we bring this all together. The prototype, the principles of mission. We have them being sent in their twos. Depending upon the Lord. Prepared for persecution. Going to preach the gospel. Preach the kingdom of God. Showing love and compassion. Then going back to those whom, by whom they were sent. And then they rest. It seems quite clear. In some ways it seems like a very simple thing. We often want to complicate because that which seems simple and yet is so biblical isn't as glamorous. But friends, where we seek any earthly glamour, we're losing focus on what is the real purpose, the real joy, the real blessing, the real necessity of mission, which is not the advancement of your ministry, but the advancement of God's kingdom. And it's not for the glory of your ministry, it's for the glory of Almighty God. And so we seek to do so by the Spirit's power, by the grace of God, by the proclamation of such a glorious message. And with this we can give thanks, and with this we can give Him all the glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, we are so humbled by what we have in this text. Father, in what the Lord Jesus does in sending the twelve out in their twos, depending upon you, O Lord, preparing for difficulty and strife. O Lord, they do so, seeking to preach Christ and show care and compassion. O Father, may we seek to do likewise. May we be a church here in Halling. May there be a church in Aberdeen and elsewhere in this land that seeks to invest in biblical mission for the investing in men for leadership, for the investing in men and women for their service to the Lord, for the kingdom of God. May there be that real sense of joy in what you are doing, O God. O Father, we trust you. And we love you. We give thanks to you for your word. And we pray for the honour and glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.